Good morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to spend these weeks leading up to Easter giving our attention to one of the most profound passages of Scripture in all the Bible, Isaiah chapter 53. You might remember from last week that when Philip found the Ethiopian eunuch reading the Scriptures, you remember in his chariot on that dusty desert road, when Philip found the Ethiopian eunuch reading the Scriptures, the eunuch was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And Acts chapter 8 Verse 35 says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, beginning actually from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, he preached Jesus to him. From a passage of scripture written 700 years before Jesus was even born, Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. That is amazing. In this chapter... Isaiah presents more than a prophecy, although it is prophetic. The prophet presents a person. We know him as the suffering servant. For seven centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus, Jewish rabbis were unified in their belief and their teaching that Isaiah 53 referred to Messiah who was to come. And for a thousand years after Jesus Jewish rabbis still taught that the suffering servant was uh, the, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was uh, the Messiah. That that passage referred to Messiah. In at least a dozen places, New Testament writers quote uh, Isaiah 53 and apply those verses directly to Jesus. But as more and more believers put the pieces together and understood the undeniable conclusion that Jesus and Jesus alone fulfilled these messianic prophecies and every messianic prophecy, but fulfilled these messianic prophecies found in Isaiah 53, Jewish rabbis moved away from that interpretation. And because Jews by and large reject Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, they they read the Bible through that interpretive lens. In other words, they begin from the vantage point that Jesus is not the Messiah, and so we have to remove him from all possibility. Jesus is not the Messiah, and since Jesus is not the Messiah, then what must this text mean? They use this, this, this understanding, this rejection of Jesus as their interpretive lens in the Scriptures, even when the text is plain. Isaiah 53 is one of those plain texts, which is evidently why Isaiah 53 is mysteriously left out of synagogue readings. Most Jews have never read Isaiah 53. In synagogues, they'll read the chapters before and the chapters after, but they'll never read Isaiah 53. There are hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Bible. We know, for instance, that he would be born of a woman. We find that in the Garden of Eden. He would be born of a woman, in other words, a human being. He, he would not be an angel or an animal, not a phantom, not a fish. Messiah would be a human being. And more specifically, he would be a man. He would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. 
He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin. Daniel prophesied that Messiah would come in a certain time frame, including before the destruction of the second temple. And that happened in A.D. 70. Isaiah 53 spells out details of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection that are amazingly accurate. And we'll see those through this sermon series that I'm calling By His Stripes. By His Stripes. That's a phrase that comes from Isaiah 53 verse 5 especially as it's found in the New King James Version of the Bible. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We'll talk more about that phrase as we come to it. But for today, the best place to begin is the beginning. And while you might think that the beginning of Isaiah 53 is Isaiah 53.1, that would be a very logical assumption. Uh, actually, the beginning of this passage is at the end of chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. I mentioned earlier that most Jews have never read Isaiah 53 and that they'll read the chapters before and the chapters after, but not chapter 53. Well, when they read chapter 52, they stop at verse 12. Verse 13 begins the section dedicated to the suffering servant. And, and this passage that begins in chapter 52, verse 13, goes through chapter 53, verse 12, is an amazingly accurate description of Christ's work on our behalf. This is a good time, um, as good a time as any, to say that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. They are God-breathed. The chapters and verses... Those, those distinctions, those separations, not so much. Actually, chapters and verses were added after the fact. I mean, much later for no other purpose than to help us in our reading, to make reading easier. So don't get hung up uh, on chapters and verses, those separations. Uh, the, the section that we know as Isaiah 53 actually begins in chapter 52, beginning in verse 13 forward those three verses they belong with Isaiah 53. But let's read our text for today. Isaiah, I said turn to 53, but we're actually beginning in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This section, this, this stanza, begins with the words, Behold, my servant. And so let's start there. Who is this servant that, that we'll come to learn later will suffer on our behalf? Who is this servant? 
I was reading one Jewish rabbi who argued that Christians have misunderstood Isaiah 53. And when I say Isaiah 53, I'm including those verses from chapter 52. You understand that. But this, this Jewish rabbi said the Christians have misunderstood this song of the suffering servant, this, 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 this passage that we know as Isaiah 53, because we refuse to read it in context. That's his assertion. But it is precisely because we read it in context that we come to the undeniable conclusion that the suffering servant is none other than Jesus It is true that the people of Israel are called God's servant in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 41, verse 8, for instance. But you, Israel, my servant. But it's also true that the prophet Isaiah himself is called God's servant. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now, says the Lord, who formed me, this is Isaiah talking, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, And there are many other servants described in the book as well. But the servant of our passage cannot be Israel or Isaiah because the servant serves as a substitute for both the people and the prophet. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. These words were written primarily to the people of Israel, and the prophet Isaiah includes himself among that lot. And so who is this servant? That's what we unpack as we walk through the text, and we're going to be doing that between now and Easter Sunday. But when Philip... That deacon evangelist found the Ethiopian eunuch reading from Isaiah 53. The eunuch asked Philip, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip answered by preaching Jesus to him. And so as I've already said, the suffering servant is Jesus. Isaiah 53 It once again includes the last three verses of chapter 52 because they belong with chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is a song. It's a song about the suffering servant. This song has five stanzas, and each stanza has three verses. Today, we see the success of the suffering servant. In the weeks to follow, we'll see his sorrow, his substitution, his sacrifice, and his salvation. But today, we see the success of the suffering servant. It's interesting that this whole section of Isaiah's prophecy begins with a declaration. This this whole section dedicated to the suffering servant begins with a declaration that Messiah would be successful. Behold, my servant will prosper. This prophetic word begins with the end in clear view. 
Regardless of the suffering that he would experience and endure when Messiah came into the world, he would accomplish everything that he was sent to do. And, and, and Isaiah states this as sure and as certain as he can 700 years before the fact. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And from the cross, one of the last things Jesus said was, it is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. My servant will prosper. My servant will succeed in what he's doing. It, it's, it's, a, it's stated as a matter of fact. Now, this success, that this prosperity would be validated in three stages. Validated in three stages. Notice what verse 13 goes on to say. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will be high is actually a reference to the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. That word that is used here means to be high or to rise. That's why some translations translate this as he will be raised. So the success of Messiah's mission would be validated through the resurrection. Next, he will be lifted up. Forty days after he was raised from the dead, Jesus gathered his disciples on the hillside, commissioned them to take his good news of hope and forgiveness into all the world. And then Jesus ascended into the heavens as they watched. He was literally lifted up out of their sight. Another validation that Christ's mission was a success. By the way, some of you know this, but perhaps some of you don't. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. But those two words mean the same thing. Uh, they mean anointed one. So that's just a little FYI as we throw these terms around. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. I, I, one of the reasons I'm, I'm speaking in terms of validation, if Jesus was a failure by dying on the cross, then for God to raise him from the dead and to perform this miraculous ascension and then to exalt him greatly, seems out of character. But really, because Jesus was doing exactly what he came to do, his success was validated through his resurrection, through his ascension, and then finally in his exaltation. Talk about validating the success, the prosperity of Messiah's mission. And keep in mind, as I've said, that Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus was even born. That would be like someone declaring a prophecy about today in the early 1300s. The world was still in the dark ages in the 1300s. But what an affirmation of Christ doing what he was sent to do and finishing what he started. God promised through Isaiah that this suffering servant would be greatly exalted. Does anything about that sound familiar to you? That he would be greatly 
exalted. It makes me think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> it is true that this prophetic word begins with the end in clear view, the success of the suffering servant. But may we never forget that before there was glorious success, there was great suffering. Great suffering. Verse 14 describes the brutal beating that Jesus received on his way to the cross. His appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. In other words, with the lacerations and the blood and the, the swelling, the bruising, his face and body were so disfigured that he hardly looked human. But Jesus knew what he was walking into. None of this surprised him. As he spoke about his own death in John chapter 12, verse 27, he said, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. And when that band of thugs showed up in the garden to, to take Jesus, Judas led them there. Peter pulled out his sword and tried to cut a guy's head off. And Jesus said, John 18, 11, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He had just prayed in the garden about that cup, that cup of suffering, that cup of redemption. If it be possible that, that this cup pass from me, and so be it, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now he's saying, shall I not drink this cup? This is the reason I came. Jesus understood full well that he was the prophesied suffering servant. And that's why, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy? What, what joy? What joy was there in suffering upon the cross? What joy could, could the writer of Hebrews possibly be talking about? Well, look at verse 15 of our text back in Isaiah 52. Among other things, Messiah would willingly suffer in order to sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling is associated with cleansing in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses took the blood of covenant sacrifice and sprinkled some on the altar and then some on the people. 
Numbers 19 describes a ceremonial sprinkling using water of purification. Rites and rituals like these set the stage for Jesus, who has both priest and sacrifice sprinkled his own blood on us to make us clean before God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 actually speaks of the blood of sprinkling. And so Messiah's suffering would bring cleansing to many nations. That's what his prophecy says. Kings would be silenced in his presence. Powerful people and not so powerful people alike would see and understand what previously they did not. And this blessing belongs to the whole world. Jesus was the Jews' long-awaited Messiah. But he never belonged exclusively to the Jews. Isaiah 49 verse 6 promised that Messiah would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Revelation 5 9 pictures heaven filled with souls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on earth. The success of the suffering servant. But let's go full circle. The first word of this stanza is behold. The Lord calls us to attention. He says, stop and look and gaze upon my servant. When is the last time that you just, you just stood in the shadow of the cross and gazed upon Jesus? suffering servant of God. I assure you that you cannot do that and walk away unchanged. You'll receive it or you'll reject it, but the one thing you cannot do is ignore it. This is one of the reasons that for the life of me, I will never understand many preachers and many Christians condescending comments about the crucifix. I've heard so many preachers say through the years that, bless God, my Jesus is not still on the cross. And, and I know where they're coming from on that, but I want to tell you something. I, I think there's something healthy about being reminded that the cross is not a polished, sterilized piece of jewelry or wall decor. I think there's something healthy in being reminded that the cross holds power in our lives because it was saturated with the blood of Jesus. We prefer a sterilized cross. We prefer a clean cross. We prefer a cross made of precious metals. We prefer a cross made of styrofoam that we can decorate with flowers. We prefer a cross that's anything but the cross of Jesus. So rather than offering our condescending comments about the crucifix. How about we stand and gaze at the cross of Jesus and be reminded that he died there. That his cross was a bloody cross. Place of death. I simply come before you today to remind you that what Jesus did as our suffering servant. He did for you. And he did for me. We sometimes have this idea 
that the work of Jesus was great, but surely it's for somebody else. Put your name in the word of God. Recognize yourself in the pages of scripture. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, put your name there. You are the world. For God so loved Larry that he gave his only begotten son. Put your name in here and know that the suffering servant came for you.